Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power this evening to the preaching of your Word, and would you grant us all we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding this passage before us. I am weak and needy, and am in need of your grace and your Spirit to do the work that you've called me to do, and I ask that that would be the case tonight. My desire is to be used by you. Use me as you see fit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I'm sure most of you remember September 11th, 2001, but I'm curious to know how many of you remember September 11th, 1990. Um, Half of you in this room weren't even born, so you probably... (laughs) don't remember, but, uh, and the other half that, that were alive, you may not remember, so I want to help you. Um, it was a Tuesday. I don't know if that helps. Uh, it was the day that President George H.W. Bush made a speech before a joint session of Congress and spoke of a brave new world order amid the Persian Gulf crisis. Uh, it was the 36th day of um, Desert Shield, and uh, Many of our ships arrived in the Gulf of Oman that day. And there was also a Boeing 727 airliner that disappeared just off of Newfoundland in the Atlantic Ocean, never to be found. It was also the day I was adopted. I was 23, which is older than most. But at that point, I had lived longer with my mother and stepfather than I had my mother and biological father. And in less than a year, I was going to be married. And so I thought it was a good time to start anew. There was a lot I wanted to leave behind, and there was a lot that I was looking forward to. And there was a statement, there is a statement in that final adoption decree that I believe is very... um, pertinent to our passage tonight. The phrase reads this way, the name of the individual shall be Christopher Paul Taylor, Taylor being my new name, and Floyd James Taylor, who was my stepfather at that point, as an adopting parent, shall be shown on the birth certificate of said individual instead of the natural father. There's a sense in which I was reborn that day. I was 23, but legally I had a new name, I had a new father, and I had a new life. I was starting over. I had new rights, new responsibilities, a new inheritance that all came with that new name and new father. Well, Peter was clear back in chapter 1 that as a result of His abundant mercy, and based upon His love and the kind intention of His will, God caused us to be born again. He is not only our Creator and Redeemer, He is our Lord and Savior, but He's also our Heavenly Father because He has rebirthed us. He has given us new birth. We have new life because of Him. 
And He, by His Spirit, not only regenerated us and raised us from death to life, but He granted us faith and He justified us and adopted us. Again, by the work of the Spirit who applied both the active and passive work of Christ to us through which we were cleansed of our sin by His blood, we were forgiven of the debt of our sin because of His death, and we were then clothed in His righteousness, His perfect righteousness. God made us adoptable, and then He adopted us. In the words of chapter 12 of our confession, God graciously guaranteed to make us partakers of the grace of adoption in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ. By this act, we were taken into the number of God's children and now enjoy the liberties and privileges of that relationship. We were given His name. We received the spirit of adoption. We now have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Like a father, God has compassion on, protects, provides for, and chastens us. Yet we will never be cast off, but are sealed to the day of redemption and will inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. And in verse 23, Peter said that that inheritance that's now ours, that has been made ours, is sure because we were born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of Christ, or Word of God. It was the Word of God, and, and it was the gospel in particular, which is the seed of spiritual life that was sown in our hearts by the Spirit and created new life, new eternal life within us. And in our passage tonight, in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2, which is really just a continuation of chapter 1, Peter describes four implications of that new life, that new birth. He says, we, have a, we were given a new disposition, we were given a new appetite, or diet, and diet, a new family, and a new purpose. Of course, that's our outline, it's found in uh, the normal place in the back of your bulletin. Ch children, you're learn listening for words, uh, you're listening for the words Christ, and love, and crave, and word, and stone, and people, and family, and purpose, and they're in their normal place as well. Um, let's begin with verse 1, with a new disposition. And again, this new disposition, we were actually, um, he began describing this back in chapter 1, in uh, verse 22, uh, he's describing this prevailing inclination. And last week we saw Peter uh, was communicating to his original readers and to us that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. But the question is, how can He command us to love? And the answer is, our hearts of stone were replaced or have been replaced with hearts of flesh, and those hearts of flesh contain fertile soil in which the imperishable Word of God or seed of God's living and abiding Word is planted by and through preaching, and when it's watered, it brings forth fruit of righteousness and fruit of the Spirit, which includes love. Our souls have also been cleansed, and the pollution of our, and stain of our sin has been washed away, clean, because we have obeyed and responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. 
And we've been set free from our bondage to our selfishness and sin. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that we have been set free to live freely and to love deeply. Unfortunately, as we all know, the residue of sin remains. And the battle between the flesh and the spirit continues to wage war within us. So Peter says in verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He's making it clear that the, the new disposition that is ours and the call to love doesn't lead to a life of passivity. It leads to a life of activity. Yes, it's absolutely true that the more we consider the gospel and the more we look fully into the face of Christ and we come to a greater understanding of our salvation and the blessings that are ours in Him and we bask in the grace that has been lavished upon us and and when He becomes the delight of our hearts, it is true, we will experience a growing desire to love and to please Him, and sin will lose its grip on us. But Peter said our new disposition includes a growing desire to wage war against that sin. He used familiar language that both Paul and, and James used as well, and it, it, it refers to the removal of clothes or the taking off of a garment. And he wrote in such a way that communicated that this putting off was, or putting away was something that, we, that, that should distinguish us. It should be a distinguishing characteristic of those who have been born again. We should be known for, and, and we should We should be known for identifying and putting away and putting off and shedding and getting rid of those sinful patterns that are are the mark of the lives of non-Christians and are therefore contrary to and incompatible with those who are born again. And his list here in verse 1 is obviously not exhaustive, but it is connected to his command to love in verse 22 back in chapter 1. The sins that he, that he listed are the opposite of love, and they undermine and even destroy fellowship and community. Malice is ill will toward others. The desire to cause injury, pain, and distress to someone else. Deceit is cunningly and dishonestly misleading someone to believe something is true that's actually false. Hypocrisy is pretending to be somebody that we aren't and to believe things that we don't. Envy is desiring to have what others have and to be who others are. And slander is speaking falsely of others in order to defame them or to damage their reputations or to cause them to um, look bad in the eyes of others. The bottom line is love is concern for others. It wants what's in the best interest of others. But these these sins that he lists, they are simply sins that promote and serve and defend ourselves. Again, the opposite of love. 
And the bad news is, Peter is talking to those who have been born again. Right? That means that these are all things that we are susceptible to. And that we must battle and seek to put off and mortify, no matter how old we may be. In the words of another pastor, there are things we shouldn't indulge. There are things that we shouldn't play with. There are things that we shouldn't coddle. There are things that we shouldn't give permission to thrive. So while I told you a couple of weeks ago to look around at each other during the Lord's Supper, and while Aaron told you last week during the sermon to look around at each other, I want to encourage you not to look around at each other right now. And I want you to solemnly consider your own hearts and your own lives. We all should identify what malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander that we're storing in our heart. And we need to repent and put it off, put it away, get rid of it. The good news is, Peter is talking to those who have been born again. That means that while we haven't been delivered from the presence of sin, we have been delivered from the power of sin. Sin no longer has a grip on us because we've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ. We must therefore consciously and continuously work at identifying, repenting of, and putting away these habitual patterns. And we need to admit that it's going to be a lifelong process. Right? Notice what he says, because Peter says we are to put off all malice. We're to put off all deceit, and all hypocrisy, and all envy, and all slander. And of course, we know that we're to put off all our sin. We can't ever think that we've arrived. We should never think that, or we should never be, and consider ourselves to be satisfied. We should celebrate the small victories, absolutely. But we should never grow complacent or content with our progress. From the words of John Owen, we must always be killing sin or it will be killing us. We must be relentless and wage war against the sin for which Christ died. And we do that by God's grace, by His Spirit, resting in the finished work of Christ, who stands in victory. So we have a new disposition as those who have been born again. We also, Peter says, have a new appetite and diet. Look at verses 2 and 3. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that is that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, our lives aren't simply characterized by repenting and renouncing of sin they're also characterized by positive growth. In other words, over the course of our lives, right, our faith and our spiritual growth is nurtured, strengthened, and increased. And Peter says, we like newborn infants long for the means by which that growth occurs. 
And those means are pure spiritual milk. It's really a great metaphor, particularly for us, considering we've had nine children in the last year. Most of us in this room, because of that, know what it's like for a baby to crave the milk that only their mothers can supply. No one else can satisfy what that tiny one desires. And he or she is going to make it known to everyone around what he or she wants or needs and is not going to be quiet until they get it. And this is instinctual. So unlike the use of the metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5 where the readers are being criticized for being spiritually immature, Peter here is using it as encouragement. But what's the milk? What's the milk that causes the growth? Well, let's look at the adjectives. It helps us, they help us define and answer that question. The word pure is actually the opposite of deceit. It means to be sincere. One commentator also pointed out that the word was used by merchants to describe that which was unadulterated and dilute, undiluted at a time when it was very common to water down milk. And the word spiritual is related to and could actually be a play on the word logos in, back in verse 23 of chapter 1. So the milk that causes this growth is the sincere, true, real, uncompromised, and therefore reliable word of God. The word of God that gives life is the word that sustains life. Just as the quality of milk produces health in the life of an infant, the quality of the milk produces health in the life of a Christian. Actually, well, as we, as we feed upon God's Word, we grow, but actually, Peter says, as we feed upon the Word, God grows us. We see this same truth in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 2 Timothy 3. And notice Peter says that this is all true for those who have tasted that the Lord is good. He's quoting Psalm 34, 8. And in doing so, he does a couple of things. He says a couple of things. One, he says this is all true for those who have been born again. These are all truths of those who are believers. And two, he says that this is all true for those who receive, or he says this is all true because when we receive the, the word, we receive the Lord. So he's saying this is all true if we've been born again, and he says this is all true because when we receive the, the word, we receive the Lord. Edmund Clowney puts it this way. He says the word of the Lord constantly presents the Lord of the Word. Coming to the Word is coming to the Lord. We cannot detach the Word from the Lord. Neither can we profess obedience to the Lord while rejecting His Word. And then he goes on to say this, that those who read the Word of God, and surely those who teach it, must never forget why the Word is given and whom it reveals. The Word shows us that the Lord is good. His words are sweeter than honey to our taste because in them the Lord gives himself to us. Now, here's the most interesting part, at least for me, in, in, in these two verses. 
Peter says we're to long for this spiritual milk. We're to crave it. Right? We're to greatly desire it. Just as our lives are to be marked by putting off and getting rid of our sin, our lives are to be marked by a great desire for the Word. This is actually the only imperative or command in these 10 verses. He's telling us we must long and must desire the Word. And I know what some of you are thinking, because I've thought it too, too many times than I would like to admit. At times, longing for the Word is our biggest problem. If we were maintaining a healthy diet and and feeding on the pure spiritual milk of the Word, we would be more consistent in our daily, daily lives and making more progress in our spiritual growth. We would be putting off our besetting sins. We'd be putting them to death, and our virtues would be stronger, and our vices would be weaker. We would be maintaining that healthy diet if our appetite for the milk of the Word was stronger. Unfortunately, there are times when we, um, when all we're eating, spiritually speaking, is hot dogs, Doritos, and Dr. Pepper. And as Tim Hawkins reminds us, the Lord would have to change the molecular structure for that to be good for us. So what do we do? Well, our appetite for milk is not going to grow unless we taste the milk. We've got to taste the milk. So if we want to awaken and strengthen our desire for the Word, we need to read the Word. We need to hear the Word preached. We need to study the Word. And we need to stop feeding on diluted and spoiled milk. And to stop eating from the buffet of 24-hour cable news outlets and social media echo chambers. We need to put the junk food aside and drink the spiritual milk of the Word. Because as one commentator put it, we are what we eat. So we have a new disposition. We have a new appetite and diet. The third implication for those who are born again is we have a new family. Peter continues his use, as Aaron pointed out last week, he's continuing this use of Old Testament, um, or quoting the Old Testament. In this passage, he quotes Isaiah 8 and, and 28 and Psalm 118, but he also uses words from Deuteronomy 7 and 10 and Isaiah 42, 43, 61 and 66 and Malachi 3 and Hosea 1 and 2. Again, something we should consider. And through the use of all of these Old Testament passages and the metaphor of a temple being built, he, he's not only or did not only make it clear that what was promised to those in the Old Testament is true for those who have united to Christ by the Spirit, and that the New Testament church has been grafted into the true Israel of God, 
he also made it clear that when a person is born again, they are necessarily incorporated into the church, or to put it another way, into the family of God. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter said, the church is the temple of God in which God dwells and makes himself known and his presence known in the world. And he's building that temple as he causes people to be born again by the Spirit. And those who are born again don't reject him as others do. They believe in him, they trust him, they rest in him for their salvation and they're united to Christ by faith. He says, Christ, though he was rejected by his own people, they didn't know it, but they were making him the cornerstone upon which the church is built. He's the foundation of God's redemptive work. The church is Christ's church. And apart from Christ, there is no church. And as the first stone set, Peter said, Christ established a sure foundation and a proper orientation. And he's the one to whom we, who are stones, are being fitted, to whom we are being fitted and aligned. He was elect. We've been elect in him. He's a living cornerstone. We're living stones. He's precious. We too are precious. He was put to shame so we wouldn't have to be. And because of our union with Him, our dependence upon Him and our dependence upon Him, we don't come to Him just once and call it good. We come to Him over and over and over again. We're to come to Him continually. Because our need for him, we never outgrow it. But we're not only fitted to him, we're being fitted to one another. You see, while our salvation is personal, it's not individualistic. And that means several things. It means the ordained way we come to him is by coming to him together. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't forsake that coming together and gathering together 
and coming to Him, as is the habit of some. It also means that our sanctification takes place in the context of family. And it means that the simple means of grace are corporate in nature. So when we say we're a simple means of grace ministry, we're saying both directly and indirectly that we put a premium on the body as a whole. There are elements of the Christian life that are private, but the majority is public. We do this together. Again, in the words of Dr. Clowney, in Christ we find the meaning of our personal lives In Christ, we find the joy of belonging to one another. We rejoice in the honor and the ministry of being built together. Mercifully, we are fundamentally and necessarily a part of something bigger than ourselves. Listen to these pointed words of Charles Cranfield. To accept the Redeemer means also accepting the people who He has redeemed. The freelance Christian who wishes to be a Christian but is too superior to belong to the visible church on earth in one of its forms is simply a contradiction in terms. Everywhere the Bible presupposes a people of God. That is every bit as true of the New Testament as of the Old The Scriptures know nothing of an individual piety that is out of touch with the living body of God's people. I'm not going to ask you to look around tonight. But the reality is, we've been joined to one another. Therefore, we need one another. We're family. We're the family of God. So we have a new disposition, a new appetite and diet, a new, a new family. And finally, Peter says, because we're born again, we have a new purpose. In verse 5, he says, offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable. This purpose is twofold. Verse 5, our, we are to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And verse 9 says, we are to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. If you remember from our study of Leviticus, priests uh, were to offer both sacrifices for sin and sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. But because Christ has, um, has made that full and final sacrifice for sin, we don't need to offer those sins anymore, but we are to offer sins of thanksgiving and praise. We are a royal priesthood. So worship is not a minor consequence of our salvation. We just heard about it tonight in Sunday school, and we're going to hear about it next week. Worship is vital. It's a primary duty of every believer. But we're also to offer our very lives as sacrifices as well. We worship corporately, but but to use Paul's words, we are to be living sacrifices, and we're, we're to seek to bring glory to God, and we're to seek to please Him in everything that we do. And as we do, the the mundane things and the ordinary things, they become significant and meaningful. And thanks be to God because of 
Well, thanks be to God that we, we are and our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving are holy and acceptable in, in His sight. And not because of who we are in and of ourselves, but because we have been united to Christ. And we offer those things in faith to Him. But not only are we to direct our worship to God, we're also to proclaim His excellencies to those around us. We're to remain steadfast in our proclamation of the mighty works of God. We're called to be witnesses of the, the lavish grace and abundant mercy of which we are recipients. We're to be ready and willing to proclaim the truth regarding our salvation and, and the living hope that's ours in Him. Brothers and sisters, my encouragement is and my hope is that we would declare by our liturgy and our worship and by our very lives the mighty work of Christ that reveals the praiseworthiness of the excellencies of God. May that be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith, love, and meekness, and readiness of mind. May we meditate on it, and hide it in our hearts, and bring forth the fruit of it in our lives, for your glory, and for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray, amen.